It's so good just to hear the reading of the scriptures. And I just, I trust that as we approach that each week, we understand the special uh, sanctity of the reading of scriptures in this time, given what this is. There's a special character to, as Paul talks about it, the public reading of scripture in the context of public worship. And so even as, uh, even as I often open my Bible to read, and, and, and we are encouraged to do so, I also love, and I, I would encourage us to think about what, what, what works best for us, but I also, I also appreciate at times just listening to the word read. And so I will at times not open my Bible to read along with the reader, um, because I just want to have it read to me. And I appreciate that at times as well. So that's just a thought. But um, this morning, we come to the conclusion of John's, John's Gospel. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw how after restoring Peter, and after bestowing on him this sacred trust of shepherding his own sheep, you remember the miracle, the beauty of that, Jesus foretold Peter's final triumph. He, you know, after Peter's failure, after at one point foretelling Peter's failure, now Peter foretells his, uh, Jesus foretells his final triumph. We see that in chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Truly, truly, Jesus says to Peter, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk where you, wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, then he said to him, follow me. Those Those words, and when he had spoken this, we saw last week, they emphasized the fact that what Jesus says next, follow me, is closely connected and even rooted in what he's just been saying. So it's like this. On the basis of the fact that I have just assured you, Peter, that you will finally triumph, that that the end is assured for you by grace. Therefore, in light of that, follow me. What a wonderful way to approach our lives. Not following in order to somehow make sure that we can, we can get there by our efforts, but following because he has achieved the end. Because he's already guaranteed the end. And so now we follow, striving, yes, with every fiber of the, all the energy that he works within us. On the other hand, it is Jesus' call to follow him that explains how the final triumph is to be achieved. There's a tension. There's a mystery there. We don't, we don't get to the final triumph without following. <laughs> so we must follow. That's non-negotiable. Jesus says, follow me, Peter, on the path that I walked. The path I have pioneered. 
The path that no one else has ever walked before me because it's the path that goes through suffering, even through death, to the other side, which is resurrection, life, and glory. Okay, but there may have been a double sense in those words. And John often does this. We're going to see this in a couple of places this morning, but we can picture Jesus. Picture it, if you will. Picture Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, follow me. Even as Peter, even as Jesus gets up and motions to Peter to follow me, right? Come along with me, Peter, now for a private walk along the beach. Because we remember where they are. They're, they're, they're together on the beach of the shores of the Sea of Galilee with a fire, having, having ate breakfast, now finished breakfast. And now we, we hear Jesus telling Peter after this public little thing going on here, Follow me, Peter. And as it were, we can picture him, as he says that, he gets up and says, follow me, Peter. And also come with me now. For a private talk. We come to verse 20 and we see that's exactly what's happening. Peter and Jesus walking together only in your handout. They're not actually alone. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. The one who also had leaned back upon his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Who is this disciple whom Jesus loved? Who is he? He's the one writing These very words. So back when we first began this series, all the way back before we even started in John chapter 1, verse 1, we saw why this disciple must in fact be the Apostle John himself. And though that was never a secret, it was never a secret like let's hide who was the author of this gospel, we still can't ignore the reality that in a gospel where more of the disciples are mentioned by name more times than in any other of the Gospels, John is not mentioned by name even one time in all 21 chapters. His name is not there. Now, we know the Apostle John wrote this Gospel, but that's the very reason we must be so impressed with the reality that he chooses from start to finish to remain in your handout nameless. And this introduces for us now a bit of a tension, not of a bit of tension. Nameless, yes, but not absent. Now here's the thing, here's here's a, a strange thing. John is nameless in this gospel. His name never once appears. You do not see the name John, unless it's John the Baptist. And yet, in this gospel, John is more present at some level than in any of the other gospels. He's nameless, but he's present. He's not there, but he's everywhere, as it were. In chapter 19, 
We saw the disciple whom Jesus loved standing nearby when Jesus was crucified. And then we saw Jesus entrusting his mother to the care of this disciple whom Jesus loved. Chapter 20. We saw Peter and, quote, the other disciple whom Jesus loved running to the empty tomb and then going inside the empty tomb on the first day of the week. And then we saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, we're told, that he saw and he believed. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 21, Jesus calls to the disciples from the beach as they're out in the boat. He provides the miraculous catch of fish. And we hear that disciple whom Jesus loved saying to Peter, it is the Lord. And what do we see in all three of those passages? We see this, the intimate involvement of this disciple of John in all these events surrounding Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. He was at the cross. He was at the empty tomb. And now we see him in the boat recognizing it is the Lord on the beach. But the very first time, the first time that the disciple whom Jesus loved appears in this gospel is at the supper on the night when Jesus was betrayed. The night that John refers to here again at the end of his gospel. Okay, So John's taken us back here at the end to chapter 13. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit. And bore witness and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. And remember, and again, they they weren't thinking of betrayal as something purposeful at this point. They were thinking of it as something accidental. So Jesus is telling them, one of you is going to betray me. And they they were thinking, uh, really it is, hand me over. But they were thinking of something inadvertent. Of course, none of us would do that purposefully. So which one of us is, is going to do this horrible thing? I mean, uh, we, we don't want to do that. Well, they didn't know who he was talking about. Now, there was reclining in Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's the first place we see this disciple. So Simon Peter gestured to him to inquire, who is the one of whom he is speaking? And then he uses this language again. He, leaning back thus upon Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? So if you picture the scene, this is a bit kind of a strange language for us today, but if you picture the scene, the, the, the table is on the floor. It's not a table like we have. Tables on the floor, and, and then the, the disciples are reclining on it. On their left side, their left elbows on a pillow, as it were. Not as it were, I believe that's actually how it was. Uh, their feet are stretched out at an angle away from the table, which allows Jesus to wash their feet quite easily, because he can just walk around and all their feet are readily accessible. You don't have to back your chair out, right? You're, just, you're laying there on, on your side with your And then you eat like this. Their feet spread out to behind. Therefore, your face is to the back of the person to your right. And your back is to the face of the person to your left. 
That helps us understand this expression, there was reclining in Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. That's a reference to the disciple reclining on, on Jesus' right, with his back facing the front or in the bosom of Jesus. That's the, that's the physical picture. When this disciple leaned back upon Jesus' bosom, what he's doing, he's got his elbow here, he's leaning back to Jesus, right, who's behind him and facing his back, to whisper something to him, face, something, face him and whisper something to him. That's the physical picture. And yet, there's more to this language than just telling us how they were situated. The language of reclining in and leaning back upon Jesus' bosom is pointing us to that special and unique relationship that existed between this disciple, this disciple, and Jesus, between John and Jesus. In chapter 1, John wrote these words, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. See that? What's going on there? It's this, who else is in the bosom of the Father? Who, who else could we say that? And so it's this utterly unique position of Jesus as the eternal word and son of God in the bosom of the Father that qualified him To explain the Father to you. To explain and to reveal the the invisible God, the Father, to us. It It is his position in the bosom of the Father. Come down now to us. And yet remaining in the bosom of the Father. That enables us to see in him the Father. What did Jesus say to the disciples? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And now... John uses this same language of being in the bosom to describe the position of the disciple whom Jesus loved of himself relative to Jesus at the Last Supper. Now, obviously, John isn't saying that my relationship with Jesus is just exactly the same as Jesus' relationship with the Father. The kind of relationship depends on who's involved. And John knows well who he is and who he is not. How do we know that? That's why he chooses to remain nameless from start to finish in this gospel. I mean, he didn't have to even say, John wrote this gospel, that's me, I wrote this gospel. But he could have included a story about himself and said, and John did this, and John said that. But he does, and John just nameless. That's why John refers to himself only, only as the disciple Jesus loved. His point isn't that he was loved more than the other disciples, right? Otherwise, he would have put his name in. His point is that the only thing that mattered to him is that he and an unworthy sinner had been loved and was still loved by Jesus. That's all that mattered to him. That is all that mattered to him. I know we've said that a number of times throughout this series, but... It's well for us to remember it again. John is not claiming some kind of favoritism here. Instead, there's a complete and total 
self-effacing. Self-effacing humility. But if that's so, why does John write of himself at all? See, there's, there's the tension. Okay, John, so you insist on remaining nameless. You insist on referring to yourself only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But then why are you in all these places? Why specifically do you choose to emphasize your position relative to Jesus at the Last Supper using the same language you used at the beginning to describe the position of Jesus relative to the Father? Do you feel a bit of a question? The fact that that's really significant to John is even more apparent because of how he carefully repeats the language here in the closing verses of his gospel. I don't know if you've ever read this passage and you've wondered yourself. You've been like, well, where did that come? Why are you you resurrecting that here? Right? Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John, in, in his mind, and everyone else knows, that's John. That's John. But then... Then John clarifies, and you know he's not clarifying, so you know which one. He still never tells you his name. But then he goes on to say this, the one who also had leaned back upon his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, so John is now taking all this time to introduce the scene. Now, Peter, seeing him following along, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? How many of us are like, ah, ah, just let the name out? In fact, I think it's most likely, I am almost sure, as sure as I could be without knowing. But what Peter actually said was, Lord, and what about John? But what does John do? John scratches his name and puts in, Lord, what about this man? John is present here at the end of his gospel but still remains stubbornly nameless. You see, there's a kind of tension here, a tension that will grow over the next couple of verses. Peter, seeing him following along behind, by the way, close enough to overhear this part of the conversation, right? You know, again, I think Peter, Peter asked this question as much for John's benefit as for himself. Because John overhears it at this point, And Jesus answers the question as much for John's benefit as we'll see as for Peter's. Now, sometimes we are, you know, Peter, we love to pick on Peter, perennially pick on Peter. But, but you know, because we're like, why? That's pretty, that's pretty um, adolescent, Peter. That's pretty immature, 
Oh, what about, what about this man? Isn't he, does he, is he going to die the way I'm dying? Is that what Peter's really thinking? I really don't think so. I think Peter's concerned. Peter and John were very close. They had been partners in the fishing business before they ever became disciples of Jesus. They've been really close ever since then. And now Peter's concern is not just, well, how long is John going to live? I'm just curious. Just let me file that away in my information. Or, how is John going to die? If I'm going to die like this, I, I hope he has to die a, a, a martyr's death. No, that's not, that's not, I don't think that's what Peter's doing. Peter just said, what about this man? If Peter is to suffer martyrdom in service to Christ in his kingdom, well, does John too, my good and closest friend and associate, what is his role? Does he have a role to play? What will that role be? What about this man? It's a big question. Jesus said to Peter, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. God has a different plan for each one of us. Our concern must not be the plan he has for the person sitting next to me in the pew, but only to follow Jesus faithfully in whatever his will and plan is for me as that unfolds in my life. That's an important and a valid lesson to be drawn from this verse. However, that lesson is not the main reason John put this passage in his gospel. Think about that for a moment. John did not say, now I remember that happening and Jesus had this great little response to Peter that I think really communicates a really important message about being concerned with God's will for me and not his will for anyone else. That's not why he put this passage at the end of his gospel. And I just want to say briefly, when we approach the Bible looking primarily for independent lessons you know, like that, every text, what's a lesson for me? What's a lesson? What's a lesson? As legitimate as those lessons might be in the text we're reading, and, and that's a legitimate lesson to be drawn from that text, for sure. But when we approach the Bible primarily looking for those lessons, it inevitably has the effect, guaranteed without fail, inescapably, of turning the Bible into something moralistic of obscuring its true power and beauty. Don't approach the Bible looking for constant lessons, as it were. Lessons, I'm using that word in kind of a loaded way. Why does John include this little exchange? Why? Not because it's a ready-made way to teach this lesson, but rather because it contributes to the overarching agenda of his gospel. And because, in fact, it brings the entirety of this gospel to its fitting and glorious and beautiful conclusion. Now, that means we've got to look a little bit closer at what John is writing. His point is not ultimately Jesus' word to Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. His point is primarily Jesus' word to Peter. 
about this disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus' word to Peter about himself. Ah! In the last verse, what did happen? He turned around, he saw the disciple Jesus and loved. And then what did he say? The one who leaned back on his bosom. We know the main point is John now, even though we don't get his name. The main point is John, and therefore, when Jesus answers Peter, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. The main point is not the rebuke to Peter or the call to Peter. The main point is what Jesus said about John. This is what John hears. Following along, John hears these words spoken about in your handout himself. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? What, what if you were following along and you heard that? What do you think you're going what, what to think you're gonna hear? Well, at one level, it's a reference just to how long John might live. You might live until Christ returns. And that's kind of like, eh, okay? Maybe, maybe not. What's the point? I don't know. You're not telling me. So what have I gone away with? I know nothing new, right? Except that I won't, maybe I won't die. I don't know. But we remember that what Peter was really asking about was any future role that John might play in Jesus' kingdom. So we have to be careful to read Jesus' answer in the light of that fuller understanding of Peter's question. Peter's asking, what about this man? What does his future hold in your kingdom? The Greek word meno, to remain, is another John word. And I won't explain to you why, but it's like amazing. This is really a John word. It's, it's his word. And here in John... It almost always refers to a dynamic remaining, an active continuing, a fruitful abiding. It can be translated to remain, to continue, to abide. So now look at how it's used in John. We're told that the Spirit remained upon Jesus. Do you see the, the, the flavor of the word? When the Spirit remains upon Jesus, the Spirit is not just statically sitting there. The Spirit is actively at work in Jesus, anointing and empowering him for his messianic work. So the Spirit remained upon Jesus. The wrath of God remains upon the one who does not obey the Son. That remaining is not just sitting there. It's something, it's an active power at work Working. The Jews do not have the Father's word abiding, continuing, remaining in them. The one who eats Jesus' flesh and drinks his blood abides, continues, remains. It's the same word in him. If the Jews who believe in Jesus abide in his word. That abiding, that remaining is an active, dynamic, living thing. And they are truly his disciples. The Father abiding in Jesus does his work. See, there it is. He's not just statically there. He's working. That remaining is a working, a continuing. The spirit of truth abides in the disciples and will be in them. These things Jesus says, I have spoken to you while abiding, continuing, remaining with you. 
Apart from one other appearance in chapter 19, the last time we saw this word was in chapter 15. Jesus uses it 11 times. I'm just going to read it here. Jesus says, abide, remain, continue in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit, see there's the idea of remaining, is an active bearing of fruit. As it cannot bear fruit from itself unless it remains, continues in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain, continue in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who remains in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, or continue vitally, actively in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, And my words remain or continue in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain, continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain, you will continue in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain In his love. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, continue, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Do you get the flavor of the word? It has a flavor. And so it is this. Living, active, dynamic sense of the word meno, to remain, to abide, to continue, that we're meant to see here in chapter 21, when the disciple whom Jesus loved, let's clarify, the one who also leaned back upon his bosom at the supper, He overhears Jesus speak these words concerning himself. If it is my will that he remain... That he continue, that he abide until I come. What is that to you, Peter? If it is my will in your handout that he work, that he serve, that he bear much fruit until I come. What is that to you? See, I love it. Jesus isn't just saying, if it's my will that he live 100 years, 102 years, right? What is that to you? No, Jesus is saying, if it's my will that he serve me and live for me and work and bear much fruit, even until I come. What is that to you? Notice especially the terminal point. Until I come. Sometimes I can't believe I miss these things, right? Staring you right in the face. Jesus isn't just saying that's the end point. The nature and the character of that terminal point is what determines the nature and the character of remaining until that point, potentially. So Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 14, 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come. I will come again and receive you to myself. That coming is fraught with meaning. He will receive us to himself that where he is there we may be also. So the coming of Jesus is a coming to take you to be with him. Therefore, a remaining and continuing potentially until he comes, what will that remaining look like? It's a remaining potentially until he comes. Therefore, in your handout, it is a living to be always ready and prepared for that coming. That's what it is. Later in that same chapter, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do. You know, he, said, he just said, you will do the greater works, but it's actually him doing them in and through us, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So let's put it together again, okay? What is this coming of Jesus? It is a coming to consummate and bring to their glorious fruition all the greater works that he's given his people to do. Okay, so throughout our lives and throughout the history of the church, God's people, his disciples, have been doing through the power of Christ in them the greater works that God has given them to do. And when Jesus comes again, he is coming to bring all those works to their glorious fruition. Therefore, any remaining or continuing potentially until he comes. What is that remaining going to look like? What is it? What is it going to be? It's going to be a life. A life of faithful service and fruit bearing while we wait for that coming when he will, when he will bring that fruit bearing all to its fruition. That is the fuller meaning of the words John overhears. I like to say overhears because I don't think he was necessarily eavesdropping at this point. Peter and Jesus both know he's there. And at this point, it's like he's part of the conversation. Everything's being said is being said as much for his benefit as as Peter's. John overhears Jesus speaking to Peter concerning himself. If I want him to remain until I come. Whatever it is Jesus wants, this is the third point I'll say. Jesus says, if I want. Jesus doesn't want things as just bare naked facts. Whatever it is Jesus wants for John, it won't just concern how long he lives. Whatever it is that Jesus wants for John, it will include all the work he has called him to for as long as he remains. Whether that is until Christ comes, or whether it means that it's until he dies, 
And what will that work include? John has no doubt, particularly in his mind, his own witness to Jesus in the writing of this gospel. It's in these words of Jesus, then, that John hears, alongside the calling and the commission of Peter, his close friend and associate, his own calling and his own commission, what he hears. And how can we not see this is what John would have heard. He hears not primarily Jesus' correction of Peter, what is that to you? He hears, not primarily Jesus' repeated exhortation to Peter, you follow me, but rather what Jesus says to Peter concerning himself. If I want John to remain, to continue serving me and bearing much fruit and doing the greater works I've given him to do, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You, Peter, follow me. And, and if I'm following Jesus and I hear this, I tell you what, in that emphatic, you, Peter, you follow me, what do I hear? I hear another emphatic, you. When Jesus says, you, that assumes the fact there's another you. And the beauty of this is that John brings this out while he stays so far in the background, we still today tend to miss it. But that we do is inexcusable, as we will see in in just two verses from now. John hears another emphatic you addressed to himself, you, John, you continue in fruit-bearing and faithful service to me, performing the greater works I have given you to do, John, for as long as you remain. Therefore, we read in verse 23, this saying went out among the brothers that this disciple, and again, we are tempted to sigh, that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? How how many of us have ever been like, what? Okay, I guess there was some error that he just wanted to fix here. It's kind of irrelevant now. 2,000 years later, we figured that out, right? But, But here's my question for you. What's John doing here? Is John including this, this verse only to correct a false interpretation of Jesus' words? Only to point out what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not say that. The NASB and the NIV actually add the word only. I think really, really unfortunately here. So it goes like this. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only. He only said this. If I want him to remain remain until I come, what is that to you? That misses the point. The word for word repetition of Jesus' words 
is intended in the end to emphasize what Jesus does say. Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. This is what it, this is how this is the actual idea. Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But but he said this. He said this. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This repetition of what Jesus does say is meant to emphasize all the more his sovereign, gracious calling upon the life of John, who will be known to the very end of his gospel only as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what, that's what John hears in Jesus' words to Peter. And yet, here we are again with the tension. Right? In your handout, we see how completely and totally self-effacing John continues to be, even as he's drawing your attention. He is drawing your attention and mine to his own apostolic calling and commission. He's saying, who am I? I am no one except for one that Jesus loved. And yet, and yet, I want you to see this apostolic calling and commission that I've received. We see how completely, totally self-effacing John continues to be, even as... He is more present in these closing verses than he has yet been anywhere else in his gospel. In fact, we might still be tempted to wonder, is it really his apostolic calling and commission that he's emphasizing? Until we read in verse 24. This is the disciple. Which which disciple? The one also who had leaned back on Jesus' bosom at the supper. That one. The one of whom Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come. That one. That disciple. This is the disciple. Who is bearing witness to these things. And wrote these things. And we know that his witness is true. Here, then, is the resolution of the tension between the John who is present and the John who is nameless. The John who is there and the John who's not there. Here's the resolution of the tension. To the extent that John draws any attention to himself, it is only so that we might believe the witness in your hand now that he has borne to Jesus Christ. And certainly, there's a model and an example there for us to the extent that any attention it should ever be drawn to us, it ought to be only for the sake of the witness that we bear to our Lord, to our Creator God and Redeemer. But we see this, we see this beautifully in the life testimony of John, his we here. It's what we call an editorial we. 
We know that his testimony is true. What John is saying is this. I know that my witness is true. And you too have come to know that my witness is true. We know, John says, that his witness is true. Why? Why? Now, watch this. And I'm assuming in this sermon, like almost so much of what we've done over the last two and a half years in John. But we know his witness is true because because this is the disciple who was reclining in and leaning back upon Jesus' bosom. And who in a similar way to Jesus being qualified to explain the Father to us. He is therefore uniquely qualified to write of these things that he has seen with his eyes and beheld and touched with his hands concerning the word of life. John says, if I'm going to talk at all about me, It's only going to be so that you might see Jesus. We know that his witness is true, brothers and sisters. Because this is the disciple of whom Jesus himself was speaking when he said to Peter, for John to hear, if I want him to remain, Until I come, what is that to you? John heard in that his call to continue in faithful fruit-bearing, doing the greater works God had given him to do, that Jesus had given him to do, for as long as he remained, whether it was until the coming or not. And always, because now, wait a minute, we say, We're supposed to believe, we're supposed to know his testimony is true just because he was there? Well, we know better than that now, don't we? Because we know that undergirding this certainty that we have of the truth of John's witness, yes, the truth of John's witness, but undergirding that certainty is the self-authenticating power of God's own witness. What does John say? This is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things and wrote these things. What things? The testimony of God concerning his son. We know, brothers and sisters, and I don't say that just generically, I mean it. I I, I could say each one of your names I would right now. We know that John's witness is true because this is the disciple, sorry, because we have believed. We know his witness is true because we have believed the greater witness, to use Jesus' own words, that God himself has borne throughout these pages to the saving person and work of Jesus Christ. This is the disciple, the one who leaned back on his bosom at the supper, the one of whom Jesus said, if I want him to remain until I come. This is the disciple who's bearing witness to these things and wrote these things. And we 
No. I just want to say, as my personal testimony, I know. And may you be able to say, with the conviction of the 100% certainty of saving faith, I know that his witness is true. And so even as this disciple, as this gospel began with the witness of John the Baptist, in chapter 1, that word witness was all over the place. The witness of John the Baptist. Now it ends in your handout with the reminder to you and to me that this entire gospel, this entire gospel has been nothing more, nothing less than the Apostle John's own witness to the greater witness God has borne concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It's only here then, it's here at the end of this gospel. We don't get his name. We don't get his name. But he is finally content to say, I. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written one after the other, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Sometimes we read that, and sometimes we think, really, did Jesus live long enough and do so many things that you, so, you couldn't compile a biography that would cover everything without filling the whole world full of books? That, that misses the point entirely. His point is not all the little details of what Jesus did. His point is ultimately the riches of the life of our Savior that are at the end of the day, limitless and fathomless. John's only desire through this gospel has been that we see Jesus in all of his limitless saving power and beauty. So that believing in him we might have life in his name. There's then only one question to be asked. It's been the question of John from start to finish. And it's never a question that grows old or irrelevant. It's the only question at the end of this gospel, and it is this, do you believe that this Jesus, that we have seen in the pages of this gospel, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you have today eternal life in his name? We see now, we understand that that's not just a matter of saying, yeah, my internal destiny is sealed, I've got the ticket, I'm good to go. That's not just a matter of saying, yes, I believed back in the day, and yes, I have eternal life, it's, 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 I got it. No, the, the question is, do you have today this, this living, transforming, powerful reality of life eternal at work in you? Through faith 
in Jesus' name. If the answer is no, because there are only two answers, yes or no. If the answer is no, won't you repent of this unbelief? Put your faith and trust in him today. If the answer is yes, then won't you know how rich and how blessed you are? If the answer is yes, then let us too, together, continue in your handout. Continue bearing fruit in faithful service to our Lord Jesus Christ, performing those greater works that he has given to us to do until he comes, or for as long as he wants you to remain. Really, that's that's the gospel in a nutshell. That's the gospel of John, summarized for us here in a way that honestly I, I never expected, but was so beautiful to see. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, at the end of the day, um, however wonderful we might see this to be, may it not be a fleshly or superficial amazement. May it it be a, a sight of beauty, a sight of 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 Christ of the witness John has borne to the greater witness that you have borne to your son Jesus to the life that we can have in his name may what we see here and what we see in the way that John concludes this John who cares nothing for himself except insofar as as we might be brought through his testimony to believe John who is nameless but present Not there, but there. So we could see Jesus. I pray that as we we truly see that, that it will be a seeing that does not leave us unchanged this week, this afternoon. Thank you, Lord for calling us, as of today, to remain, to continue, until what time, we we do not know, but we do know, that until the time that you have either appointed Jesus to return and receive us to himself, or that you call us to yourself through death, we thank you that you have given us works to do, fruit to bear. We pray that we'll be striving ever more and more and more because we have believed in Jesus and the eternal life that he gives. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.